Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hi, guys. Uh, So glad you guys could be here today with us because we are so thrilled to be talking with one of Hollywood's most celebrated writers, Ed Solomon. Ed's 16 feature films have grossed over $1.6 billion at the box office, and he's known for co-creating huge franchises like Bill and Ted. But before we get to our interview and our Ed Solomon download, let's first ask him to join our week and what we did this week, or what we like to call Adventures in Screenwriting. So Lorian, we're going to have you go first, and then we're going to have Ed go, and I'll, I'll, I'll pull up the rear on this one. So Lorian, how was your week? Uh, my week, I had two interesting things happen. One is that I'm pretty sure I found an ending to my pilot that raises the stakes and will uh, make the audience ask what happens next. I want to watch episode two. So um, hopefully, you know, so I, I feel good about that. It's been bugging me for a while. And I think I found a satisfying way to end it. The other uh, interesting thing that happened to me this week is that I received a compliment and I accepted it, which is huge. Now, (laughs) May I say congratulations, that is admirable. Thank you. It's a, it's a huge thing for me. Um, and I think part of the reason I accepted it is that it came with a pass. <laughs> so it was, uh, uh, you know, one of my projects is out and a producer emailed me personally and said, it's a pass and here's why, but then complimented my writing. So I feel like there's nothing to be gained by this producer lying to me. Um, and I also felt really, you know, her reaching out to me personally, I felt really seen and valued, you know, so much of what we do is in this vacuum, you know, usually it goes through your reps. And so I really felt like she didn't have to do that. So I I felt like, oh, I can, I can believe her and I'm going to accept (laughs) this compliment in this moment. You know, today it's worn off a little, this happened yesterday. So we'll, we'll see as I move through, but, um, Maybe I could accept it because it came with a pass, right? There was like a negative and then a positive. And I was small like, steps, okay. Lauren, small steps. It balances out. Good. So, I mean, otherwise my week was, you know, I was writing and parenting, which took up a lot of my energy this week for some reason. But I did realize that the things that my daughter is really struggling with, I had this moment today of, oh God, they're the same things I struggle with and how frustrating that parenting has to be this dark mirror all the time. And, you know, it, but it took me, I don't know how many years to figure this out, which is, you know, exhausting in its own way. And then, but that sort of mirrors how I've been slogging through this pilot too. Like, what does she want? What is she doing? And then, oh God, it's me. How do I separate myself from her and, and sort of figure this out? But so that was my week. Love it. Great week. I'll take it. I love it. Ed, Ed Solomon, how was your week? You know, it was lovely. It's an unusual week for me. I, well, you know, I, I, uh, over the holidays went through a very painful uh, breakup and that was starting around Thanksgiving ish and met somebody 
not too long ago. And I kind of developed what I would call a little crush. And by little, I mean sort of a giant infatuation. <laughs> and uh, she arrived in town and was, because uh, uh, she lives in somewhere else and was here for work. She works on a show. And I say this because I turned in a script last week at the end prior to the three-day weekend. And normally the way my brain works is the script is 123 pages long. So 123 minutes after I hit send, I started figuring they hate it because I hadn't heard from them. (laughs) I turned it in at like Friday, you know, prior to the weekend and knew it was a three-day weekend, but the clock starts ticking. And normally, as you know, there's this sort of, you can pretty much intuit what somebody thinks of your script, not even by what they say, but when they respond. So yeah. there's, there's the, they responded over the weekend. Oh my God, that's amazing. There's the, okay, it's the first thing in the morning on usually Monday, but this would be Tuesday because it was a long weekend. So Tuesday morning, I noticed, I was like, okay, well, I'm on the East Coast, they're on the West Coast. So around, you know, like if it's the, I'm driving into work to tell you, although nobody's driving into work anymore, but basically (laughs) it's the nine o'clock call is fantastic before the staff meeting. Then there's the noon call, which is the, after the staff meeting, once I've kind of figured out what other people think. Exactly. Now I know what everybody else thinks. Yeah. Right. Before I say, and then there's the uh-oh, like it's getting to be four o'clock, five o'clock, shit, I really got to call Ed back call. And then there's the, now for me on the East Coast, there's the eight, eight, eight thirty, nine o'clock call, which is a really better call him before my day is over. Cause you, you know, but because of several things, including my class that I was teaching that Meg came and spoke and was a genius. Yes, uh, and my stupid infatuation what happened was it came Wednesday and I didn't hear from them and it came Thursday and I didn't hear from them. And um, because my head was focused on so many other things, I didn't realize they called two days earlier. <laughs> and um, I must have seemed like the coolest writer of all time. I'm like, I don't care. I'll get back to you when I can. Maybe I'll have my daughter call and say anything we can help you with. You know, like I'm going to just be so anyway. I love it. I went through the, I did like go, oh shoot. And I remember lying down to go to sleep when, uh, not having realized Ed called like seven hours earlier <laughs> on the first night going, huh, don't worry, Ed. It's probably not a big deal. You don't know, but you know, my, the, the odds meter are, you know, is going more and more toward like, oh, this is not good. Uh-oh, this is terrible. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And then the next day, I started to feel a little bit better because I was like, well, I haven't even heard yet. I don't know why I didn't even bother to check my phone <laughs> and see that they had called, but I didn't because, of course, my brain was in other things. But what was good about them having not called, at least in my mind, was I had this little window of space yes. where I could focus on something that I am uh, very excited about, which is I'm wor- working on a musical, and I got Ooh. to... Uh, spend some time with the fellow I'm writing it with and work on it with the composer a little bit. And then yesterday I had a call to present to, there's some underlying rights that we need to get for it. And we're in the negotiation to get it. Um, Cause there was, um, although we don't technically need it, but we're trying to, we just want yeah. to cover ourselves. So uh, made a presentation basically to the people who control those 
to tell them what we're thinking about. And that was really That's fun. fun. That's yeah, and then I have to read. I started reading, I wrote a, um, the whole season of a show that mm -hmm. shoots in about a year. It actually shoots next year. And I have two parts that I have to do. I've already written the season, but I had to read it because I'm also, we're also doing a, a branching narrative version of it and shot entirely oh, wow. differently, you know, kind of pick, pick a character and follow version, even though it's a linear show for the most part. So that's what I did yesterday was read that I and start that. thinking about that. I so. love that branching narrative idea. Back when I was a producer and we produced a movie called um, The Dangerous Lives of Ultra Boys, I had this whole idea that we could go online and, and publish like branching narratives like of other characters. Everybody thought I was insane because it was the 90s. Everybody was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, no. dang it, I was ahead of my time. A couple of years ago, this HBO thing. And I know, so cool. It, 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 we learned a lot, you know. I mean, did a lot. I think we did some stuff correctly, and we made some choices that I think, in hindsight, now we know, and we're doing differently. So, this will be, I think, a, not even a 2.0, but like a 4.0 version. See, of now I might have to have you back. We might have to have you back just to talk about branching narrative, a whole show, because I'm so interested in it. But um, my week was. Um, so I, I'm in that stage of writing where it's all laid out. It's, it, you like it. I'm in the stage of writing where you like it, which is very uncomfortable. <laughs> because then you're like, oh my God, I like this. I really, really like this, which makes you feel more vulnerable. And then you get that note. Um, you know, it can be from an executive or a producer, but it can also be from yourself, right? Where you're reading through and you're like, oh, that's not, that could be better. That doesn't quite work. Or, and you get that note that, Something you're like it ripples it just starts as this little drop and then by like later you're like okay this is a tsunami it just rippled through the whole thing and suddenly you realize all those pieces that you had so beautifully kind of perched you know that jenga that you've built <laughs> it's like crap this all the way through so it's just part of the process that i'm in um what was the note from the character so of course it's your main character and their action in act one, which then of course affects act three. Um, and it just like ripples bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I'm fine with it because I know that's part of the process. Um, and, but it's that thing where you're like, but I like act one. <laughs> I like it just like it is. And I know that you, everybody's gonna think this is a Band-Aid, but it's not a Band-Aid. It's this giant thing now. So um, it's just going through that, just that writer's process of, Every note, no matter seemingly how small, can have a ripple effect. Um, and then I tend to want to blow things up because I'm like, well, let's just blow it up because the ripple's too big. And sometimes you just can't. You just need to uh, make it work, as they say. I like uh, those notes where they go, it's a small thing. It shouldn't affect too much. And then it, it's, it blows everything up. And then you just have scraps and you're like, oh, I, you know, that there's a, so it's like, oh, it's just going to be a little bandaid, but then it's like massive surgery yeah. that you have to. Yeah. I don't think people know, I think, and it's not their job almost to know, like, this is a big one. People will say, this is a big one. And you'll go, actually, that ain't big at all. We had one on uh, No Sudden Move, which is this movie that Mm -hmm. being really it's it's done now and will be being released during this year and we got an ominous ominous phone call just before we started shooting 
And we had to sit down with the lawyer from Warner's and the whoever's like in charge, like the top level person of creative. And it was serious. Like we had to set the time aside and we had to get in this call, like a Zoom call. And the guy started by saying, I don't know how to present this to you guys because it affects the whole thing. And I was, you know, a little freaked out. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, and um, you know, I'm so sorry. And I spent, I, we hired outside counsel about this. And I mean, I thought, Oh no, my God, the entire problem was fixed with one line of dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. But it wasn't his job to understand how easy it would be to simply add the line. Of course, no one at his company even knew about it. (laughs) And that changed the entire thing. All their liability went out the window, no problem, et cetera. And that's the same with creative notes sometimes. Sometimes someone will have a giant note and you can just go, oh, well, all I do is invert that or, you know, and then sometimes they say, this is nothing. (laughs) You're like, and I like when I'm like, oh yeah, that's nothing because I so want it to be nothing. Yes. I just am holding on to that nothing like a rope. And then I go finally in and I'm like, yeah, no. Well, unfortunately, those little changes, the ripple effects aren't just, well, sometimes they're surgical, right? But sometimes to truly fix something, you need to be willing in your mind to open the whole thing up and question everything and make little shifts here and there or maybe big ones. And See, I believe in always having that brain set that you're, you're willing to now open the whole thing up. I mean, you can be in situations where you have something due and of course you're not going to open the whole thing up. It's due on Monday or you've got a team around you and they're waiting for pages. But in my heart, I'm still willing to open it all up because the only way you're going to see it really get real about it. Right. That what's the problem under the problem. Um, But it's, you know, it takes daring it just every day. You got to put on your, your uh, bravery pack. I think it takes a point of view that views the piece itself as fluid at all times and morphing at all times. And I often think of any iteration of an outline, a script, a draft, something up on a board, post-it notes as simply snapshots of something that is moving through time and space. And the more I can keep my brain like, asking that question, which is, what is it now? What is it now? What is it now? Like all day, every day, what is it now? And if it's this, that means this. And not getting so precious because you know how it is. You got to like, <laughs> you got to have faith that if you're in this for the long haul, one word, one phrase, one sentence, one scene, one script, unfortunately, doesn't mean you don't work your ass off on making this the best it can be but it's all part of a long flow and these things aren't like i don't personally believe in the whatever is it the aristotelian idea i I don't know like where you chip away you just chip away it it exists and you're just chipping away everything that's not it i don't buy that i believe that it's an infinite set of possibilities and you're making choices and you can go this way or that way and if you go that way it means this and if you go whatever just like your character 
Because even getting some emerging writers to understand that, that the characters by their choices is creating the storyline. Exactly. It's not the story exists and they're just moving through it. They made a choice and therefore the story went that direction, which sounds so simple. And yet even I sometimes catch myself as a writer not doing that, not really giving all of that to the main character to create all of that power in their behavior and choices. Well, then now's where the chess game gets three-dimensional and I think it gets like nine-dimensional ultimately or maybe infinitely dimensional, which is then it becomes not about you creating an outline that your character follows, goes through, or your plot, or whatever you want to call it, but rather your character is rich enough that they can surprise you, and then when they surprise you, you have the dexterity to go, wait, what is this telling me? Mm -hmm. And step back as the so-called controlling god, or whatever you want to call it, and go, wait, now what is my new world here? and then step back into the character. And it's that dance in a weird way. It's that collaboration between you and your story and you and your characters. And to me, that's the next level of thinking, which is, oh, this isn't about me coming up with a story and then making characters go through it. It's me assessing at the deepest, most organic level, what is the story becoming? And like Lauren, you were talking about how, you know, parenting, it's parenting. It's like, I thought when I had a kid, my first kid, I had two kids and I thought I have two kids when I thought <laughs> I'm going to have a child. And when we found out it's going to be a boy, I said, my boy is going to be, I felt like I'm about to sing a song from Oklahoma, <laughs> but my, my boy is going to be this way and parenting is going to be this and he's going to be like this. And then uh -huh. he came out of the uh -huh. room <laughs> and he looked at me and everything went out the window. Uh -huh. Suddenly my job was not to go, this is the direction I'm taking you in, son. It was, oh, I see. There are parts of him that are part of me. And I feel sorry for him for that. <laughs> many times in life, this is going to be your life work, getting rid of that part, yeah. <laughs> understanding that part. But as it pertains to this, your job as a parent quickly, you realize, becomes not trying to shoehorn a kid into some <laughs> trajectory, but rather how do you guide this person that is of you and with you, but into the, the best manifestation of what they can be. And they tell you that. And then when I had a second kid, oh, was I wrong about all my thoughts about what it means to be a parent? Because <laughs> guess what? It applies entirely differently to the other child because your job is not to parent them the same way you parent this child. Because it's the same with your projects. Like you get a new project and it's like, well, everybody's like, well, you're a pro and you're getting paid. So isn't it easy? And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like it's a brand new thing. Like I, I love Ed that you're doing a musical, but I'm sure part of your brain is like, Ed, a musical. Now we have to learn a whole new thing. Like it's with every script, every script. Do you do have this where you go, wait, it's not just how do I write the script? It's, Wait, how do we write? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. literally every time. So wait a minute, wait a minute. What do I do when I write something? Like how, and actually I don't mind that mindset. I like that mindset because it forces me not to go, but what I do is now I start the outline of it or now I break this part and now I break that part. Everyone is different. 
Everyone's different. Everyone's Every different. part of everyone is different. Like you start with, or at least for me, I start, I'll start down a path with it. I'll start outlining and then I'll go, it isn't working for me to do this anymore. Now I'm going to talk it about, about it or now I'm going to put it up on a board or actually this part doesn't want to be as detailed or it's the strangest thing. Everyone yeah. is different. Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out. And, you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot, and I want to see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool. So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of ScreenFD for 25% off. You should check it out. That's ScreenFD. S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. Okay, so, Ed, now we're going to ask you some questions. All right. Um, And um, we're going to do a little intro here just to remind everybody um, of your great work um, so that our listeners can... um, understand the context of these questions. So Ed, you are um, one of Hollywood's most recognizable writers. This is your life. And um, you're the creator behind three juggernaut franchises, Bill and Ted, Men in Black, and Now You See Me. And you were Bill and Ted with Chris Mathis. Co-created, co-created. And you represent a rare intersection of critical and commercial respect in the industry. And you collaborated with some of Hollywood's most celebrated directors, including Steven Soderbergh, who just wrapped uh, his production crime thriller, No Sudden Move, which is going to drop on HBO Max. Yes? Yes, and in theaters, depending on whether people will die or not. If they Okay, let's hope, let's hope theaters then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope yeah. for all of us, for the whole world, theater. Exactly, right. But it'll probably and, be HBO Max and maybe maybe a few theaters. I don't know. Awesome. Cool. So in TV, you began as a staff writer for Laverne and Shirley, and you wrote on It's Gary Shandling's show, and you also created HBO's murder mystery series Mosaic in collaboration with Steven Soderbergh. Now, I want to talk about Laverne and Shirley, obviously, <laughs> but... We're going to get to the questions Sorry. from our listeners. <laughs> Meal, shamazel. I can't, I would. We can oh my God. That. So good. I so literally good. was, I don't, I was just doing that in my kitchen the other night. Okay. So, um, so a lot of our questions off of, from our listeners for you, Ed, were because you're such a master at creating what this kind of word of high concept, right. Um, or genre. Um, some, one of our listeners called it buzzy. You do kind of buzzy things. Um, 
So when you're going to start just creating a concept, where are you going to, to do that? Are you starting with characters? Um, where, what is the inspiration for a, a, maybe let's say a higher concept um, story? Well, if you luck into something that you would call high concept, uh, it kind of scares me because for instance, with Men in Black, which I think was the highest concept thing I'd ever been involved with, there are inherent problems with it. And they happen on multiple levels. One is just the fact that it's so-called quote high concept. And by the way, most of the time I don't. Like most of the ideas I have have nothing to do with what I would call right. high concept. And in fact, when I do, they usually scare me because usually they can send you way in the wrong direction really fast for a lot of reasons. But so one of the things that happens with a so-called high concept idea, and this happened on Men in Black a lot, which was because it's so high concept, everyone has an, their own idea about what it might be. Uh. So that was a particular issue with Men in Black. It doesn't want to be dramatic, comedic, you know, what direction, what are they doing? And in fact, I got into some relatively, um, let's say vociferous arguments with one of the central characters who shall go nameless, Tommy Lee Jones. And in our very first meeting, he said to me, it's either science fiction or it's comedy, make up your mind. And I believe he used the word asshole. And in fact, used the word fun asshole. times. Yeah, fun times. And I said, it isn't good enough science fiction to be a drama. It needs the leap of faith. It's a comedy. This is a comedy that's using science fiction as a, a modality, I guess, you know, and uh, or it's a science fiction comedy. And he's like, you can't do that. And I was like, OK, so let's pretend it's a drama. And I remember two weeks into production, the producer came up to me and said, oh, no, no. The director came up to me, Barry Sonnenfeld, and he said, I think Tommy just figured out he's in a comedy. <laughs> And I think part of the reason he was so good in it was he actually thought he wasn't. Which was right. Great. I was going to say, I actually thought it worked now that I look at it and think about it, that he didn't so play it that way. Yeah. I think at least per my, the very few conversations I did have with him, I think he thought he was in an unfunny comedy is what I actually think he thought he was in. <laughs> now, when you're, when you're creating that script, um, it, which is comedy and action as well, um, were you really, as a writer now, on your own time and taking out all the other voices, were you really staying with the characters and letting them drive it? Or were you thinking set pieces and what the director needs and comedy, it's not funny enough? Like, how do you balance all those things? There wasn't a director when I first was doing it. So it was really just me and it was with Walter Parks, who was the producer and kind of mm -hmm. trying to fashion, what is this gonna be? For me, with something like that, that's a very specific example, but with that one, it was, what is the world view? Mm. What is the tone and the feel? And most important, who are the eyes into this? And who are these people? Because that's the problem, as I was saying before, with so-called high concept. It is an immediate invitation to walk into the wrong door that you'll never get out of, which is, Concept, 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 concept. It's only about the people. And when you're breaking the story, quote unquote, and you know that this might be a big movie or a so-called high concept movie, whatever, there is literally no difference than if you're breaking, in my opinion, the smallest 
indie drama, which by the way, going even further, when you're writing comedy, I still don't think there's a big difference. You know, you, you're, you're still breaking a story based on the truth of the story itself and the, and the truths of the people in the story. So let's talk about that. Like when you say, just to make sure our listeners understand what you mean by the truths of it, can you, can you elaborate a little bit? Are you thinking about, like sometimes I use the word emotional thematic. What is this about emotionally for the character? But what do you mean by the truths of the story? Well, since we're talking about Men in Black, which is interesting because right. I haven't talked about it in a long time, but since we're talking about Men in Black, I remember at the beginning going, this is a story about an arrogant, cocky young man. Originally, he was a Secret Service agent who thinks that guarding the president of the United States is the most important human endeavor, you know, the powerful, and gets that job only to realize that that ain't even close to what's really going on on the Mm. planet. And it was about a young man who ultimately became Will Smith, Mm -hmm. a young man realizing that the world is much bigger than he ever thought it was. Mm. He he is merely a small speck in this universe. And it was about somebody changing their point of view about the world and realizing that being of service meant something entirely different. That was what it was originally about. And so I started with who is this guy? Mm-hmm. And he is his eyes, our eyes into this. We cast Tommy Lee Jones first because he had just come out of The Fugitive and got his Oscar and was a big star, which began the beginning of my getting fired, which, which I say the beginning because I was fired five times. Um, hired back each time, thankfully, but uh, <laughs> yes. Um, so Tommy came on board and we didn't have Will yet. We didn't have someone to play the other part. And so it began a restructuring of the movie to do two things. One, be more serious, which was a mistake. And to put Tommy's character, who knew everything already, at the center, which was, in my opinion, you couldn't enter the story that way. Right, because he knows more than us. Yes, exactly. Especially when you're trying to when you're trying to create a world that is different than the world that we all live in, meaning when you're trying to unveil new information about reality, quote unquote, for me, I did not know a way into it that was not through the eyes of the sort of innocent, you know, right. And, but, and that was my argument, which I lost and got fired and a draft was created. And I wrote a, somewhat blistering, I I was told, but I thought straightforward, but apparently I was still young enough that I hadn't learned how to couch my feelings in a more um, palatable form of politeness. (laughs) And I, I basically wrote a seven or eight page, I still have it, letter going through it saying all the reasons that I thought these things I thought, which Barry Sonnenfeld said to me later when I, when I was rehired. And we were using that letter, by the way, as the document to, to, to do in the new draft from. But he said, that letter, that letter's what got you more fired. So, <laughs> <laughs> However. But I, but I love that the, the truth that you were following was 
the world's bigger than you think it is, but it doesn't mean you can't still be in service. Like that's both a kind of societal big old world thing in terms of words and then personal to this character to be in service is a very personal drive now to still hang on to and that you have both of those views and they're both coming from your main character and that the comedy's coming from that and the action sequences are all coming from that start is just really awesome. Sorry, Lori. So the movie began originally, this is the original draft. It began with sort of the embodiment of how Will's character, Jay, saw the world. It began with Secret Service officers and, you know, like, who's going to get this position? And cocky Jay gets this position. And uh, on, a, on a sort of philosophical level, right, there's this idea that this is how society is stratted and we, we humans are at the top. Right. And on a personal level, he was cocky and arrogant and embodied all that on a personal level and his own personal look i don't really care about a character having a philosophical right understanding that's a cerebral thing it's what's the emotional Emotional. journey that he goes on well he goes on one where he gains legitimate humility and real you know and and learns that his job is not to um not to boast and, you know, uh, think he's better, but actually the real honor comes in serving people quietly. The idea of who are you when nobody's looking. If well, he- and how beautiful the metaphor is that if people ever knew how good he was and what he's able to do and all he's accomplishing, he has to wipe their memories. Like that this character who thinks that's so important at the beginning, by the end, he wipes the memory and of his mentor who taught him that, who will never know everything he accomplished. Like it's emotional even just thinking about that, right? And so this movie that everybody loves because it's a ride and it's super fun, I think it's a classic for those reasons, but really because of that deep emotional underpinning that we just said that when I say it in a sentence gives me a little verklempt. I'm like, oh my God, like what if all of your greatness has to be forgotten in order to serve your greatness. Like it's such a great, it's so good, Ed. (laughs) Thank you. Well, part of, by the way, part of what made it better was the pushback from Tommy and the, the, the actor's legitimate need to have his own arc, which was a flaw in my conception. But the arc, you know, the the I guess the the desire to satisfy that brought it you know on a scale of one to a hundred where it needed to go to fourteen or fifteen brought it to ninety six and what what we did get out of all of that interaction which I didn't have enough of was what you said which is this is somebody who wants out and who isn't looking for a partner is looking for a replacement. And once that was figured out, then Tommy's arc became clear to me as well. And everything could be structured. And I also want to say how beautiful it is that everything you're talking about, there's a want underneath. He wants a replacement. He wants it. It's not he's waiting for it. He wants it. And therefore, all the behavior for that actor and that part starts to have clarity for you as a writer. Because a lot of our emerging writers really struggle with want. 
and it's, giving a character a, a want. And to me, it's like so essential, right? It's, it's, it's everything because it creates it's, behavior. It's the thing we are, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, it's still the thing I stop, back up and go, wait a minute. And ask myself two questions often. What would our old friend, the truth, tell us to do here? Meaning, why is this person here in this moment? And what would they really do? That's the first thing. And the second one always is, it's like screenwriting 101 or one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> what does she want? Why is she here? What does she want? What does she want in the scene? What does she want in the sequence? What does she want in the act? What does she want in the trajectory of the whole piece? What does she think she wants? What does she need? What does she want now that something has changed? You know, some, uh, 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 you know something happens, something changes. Now your character wants a new thing. And they want things on a lot of levels. And the more I learned, and, and this is a thing that I think... Um, I think there are ways that emerging writers can help themselves get some of the experience that somebody like you or I have, which is the benefit of watching actors constantly work through your stuff, which yeah. is both ennobling and humbling. Um, and, and one of the things that I would strongly, strongly, and people don't do it, and my God, when they do it, they are, it changes everything, strongly recommend get your scenes up on their feet, get your scenes up, even a rough version, get some actors, even if they're not great actors, to just get a few scenes up and see what happens. When an actor asks you questions like, what am I doing? Why do I wanna be here? What am, what am I doing in this? You know? And the other thing I would strongly suggest to any emerging writer is take acting classes. Yeah. Even if you suck, I sucked as an actor, but I took classes and they really helped me because once you are able to think as an actor thinks, understand how an actor interprets your words, what they need, what they not need. just to attract a movie star, that is a whole separate thing, but it all is related to creating human beings that other human beings are going to embody and then you know, manifest. What does that take to create somebody that is so full, that has drive, that is going somewhere? Because the main question any actor is going to ask themselves, and they're going to break the scene down, and they're going to break the sequence down into, what is this beat? What do I want? Now what do I want? Now it's, you know, objective. What is my yeah. objective here? Yeah, amazing, amazing. I, 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 such great advice. And I know, and I know, people are all over the world, but there are acting classes all over the world now. You can do them on Zoom, people. There's no more excuse. There's yes. No more excuse. There, you, you don't have to be Zoom. good. You no, don't be terrible. Because it's not why you're there. You're not there to be an actor. You could be terrible at it, and that's yeah. also great for your ability to take that you stink at something, and you can still do it. By the way, which is also important as a writer to understand, because you're going to write a lot of shit first. So, um, all right. So, Lorian, let's talk. One of the questions in about life and career advice. Oh, okay. Let me go to that section. Go to that section. Um, okay, this is a good one. So, a lot of emerging writers assume that 
fancy writers like you uh, pretty much pitch anything and get a green light. Yes, that's right. You're fancy. Uh, <laughs> well, can you, I only knew. Can you I mean, talk about this? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, how you handle rejection. Or yeah, how do, do you handle rejection? Do like, you experience it anymore, Ed? Look, I know, Lauren, you were taking a compliment earlier. I am <laughs> failing at that. I am not taking... Do you need me to say something mean to you, too, so that so you that can, I can take understand the compliment? It? Yes, so, okay. I, so I give you a small sense of actual respect. How, how dare you let me call you fancy? Oh, thank you. I understand yeah. this better. Thank yeah. you. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so can you just walk into a room and pitch it and get it greenlit? Like, are you in the same grind that the rest of us are in? <laughs> I'm only laughing. <laughs> because, no. <laughs> so the thank question you. was about rejection. and uh, uh, can one, So I think there's two things. One is, can, how do you handle... Um, can you just do anything you want at a certain point now that you're a fancy writer? But I think there's a deeper question under that that actually was another question we had, which is how do you deal with setbacks? Um, a script doesn't work or, you know, projects fall apart. So I think there's both of those things in that trajectory. Okay. The answer to the first question, which is being a so-called fancy writer, which by the way is a, um, another one of the pitfalls, right? Once, if you ever even begin to think of yourself as that, you might as well prepare for your retirement because it's happening soon. And it may probably be forced on you. Meaning I think there's a position that we all have to take and we can't fake it. It has to be a deeply held belief that we are essentially still with, you know, the pretentious word would be the beginner's mind, but like, but we are in a learning process that the continuum between what we would call an emerging writer and a, a, a seasoned or whatever one might call me or you guys, you know, whatever, is it is a continuum and the process is exactly the same. And as soon as we stop learning, just like we were learning at the beginning, it's over. And we've watched so many of our friends. I mean, I know I'm speak for myself. I'm old enough to have seen multiple wonderfully talented, wonderful human beings face the heartbreak of the inability to work. And often it, and it stems from a lot of reasons. Um, and I'm afraid of those reasons deeply uh, for myself as well. And you know, a lot of times it comes from one of the consistent things I've seen is it comes from cynicism, uh, guardedness, just the, the, and this leads to your second thing, the inability to deal with rejection, which is brutally painful in every part of our life as a human being. It is about ego, not ego, like, look at how fancy I am, but ego, like the inability to disentangle your work, which is so much of you from your sense of yourself, which is you. And the notion that this isn't working yet and it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean I was wrong to go to film school. It doesn't mean I will never make it. It, it doesn't mean any of those things. It just means this isn't working yet. Yet. And, yet. and I don't believe in confidence, except when you're talking about your story like in a pitch. And that's a whole different thing. But I also don't believe in confidence in that regard, as in, let me put on a show because I'm so confident. I mean, 
quiet confidence, which is the thing that sells it. Quiet confidence, meaning I know where I'm heading with this and I'm comfortable with that. I know my story, I know why I like it and I can talk about it very casually if I want. And I don't have to oversell it because I believe in it. That's, that's where confidence comes in. But writing, no, I don't have any confidence. I have faith. Mm. And they're different. Faith is, I don't think I know what I'm doing here, but something isn't right. But I know that I'm gonna figure something out. And it may not be the answer to the problem. It may be that I have the wrong problem, or it may be the question is wrong, or it may be that my assumptions are wrong. Or it may be that this whole chunk that I thought was so great actually doesn't want to be there at all. And then maybe some of it does want to come back. But you have faith that if I keep at it and that if I don't work in a, quote, productive way today, but rather just bang my head against the wall metaphorically and sometimes literally, (laughs) which I will do when my people stand next to the whiteboard and hit my head against it and go, hey, I'm actually banging. This is where this cliche comes from. I'm actually banging my head against the wall. How about that? Um, The idea of rejection is a big, big, big idea. The idea of failure is a big, big, big idea. And I would like to make the argument that we should embrace both of those things, not just on a practical level in that you learn more from your failures in terms of when something really bad happens, you learn a lot as long as you have the faith to step up and keep going. Mm-hmm. And the ability as a human being to be unguarded enough to go honestly, and sometimes this takes a while, what, what did I do wrong and what can I fix? Where is this my fault? Where is this partially my fault? And where it was, where? And where wasn't it my fault? And be honest about that. And that takes work. So that you can optimize, move forward, not make the mistake again, go on. We learn way more, I do, from my mistakes, from my failures. But I mean failure in a different way. Not a script gets rejected, a movie gets panned. I've had those. They're fucking painful. It's painful. It's not like I embrace failure in that way. And on a practical level, it's nice to have things work. It just feels better and it gives you more opportunities. Let's just be honest. But to me, and now what I'm about to say is going to sound negative, but I really mean it. It's not. And I'll explain it after I say it. Every day is a failure. Every day is full of failure. The scene's not working. This character isn't right yet. Script isn't done. I thought I'd be here, but I'm there. I can't figure this out yet. It's not good enough. It's not funny enough. Or it's just not, it's, a, it's not suspenseful enough. Or this just isn't cool enough. Or this isn't truthful enough. Or, this isn't right. I don't have it yet. I thought the outline was, where oh, crap, I have to re-outline this section. I, daily, day after day after day is, depending on how you look at it, failure. It only isn't, for a brief moment. Hey, I think I'm done. I don't think I can take this any further. I've given it to friends. They've given me feedback. I've gotten, you know, I've rewritten it. I've written it again, me plus time. I took a week off. I reread it. I don't think I have anything to add to it yet until somebody tells me differently, right? That's a moment where you go, uh-huh. But then the next set of failure, 
happens, which is it didn't go over the way you thought it would, or it's starting to get made and it's changing, or, you know, there's a million versions of failure. So for me, it's about embracing that as not a problem, as, but rather part of the milieu or part of the metier. What's the word I'm looking for? Like the ether through which you're moving you know, is it is the process through which you're moving. It's the process. It is an artistic process to fail. And again, is it failure or challenge? You know, it's well, both. It's about how you it's it's the same event defined either as a good thing or a not good thing or just a thing. And it's I think just it, a thing why I put the judgment on it as failure yeah. or not failure. And I know we do and and we do it to ourselves all the time. But at some point as an artist, that is the process of you're pushing so far, you're trying so many different things that you, you should want failure in a way. You know, like I, I've said on here before that Pixar's motto is fail fast. They mm -hmm. want failure because they want you to be pushing and pushing that far. But I, I really love the insight that, you know, those challenges are every single day, that that is writing. That but is I, you know, to me, what keeps it, and I love the word faith. I love that, that, that it's, it, that it's confidence versus faith. I really love that because for me, when you're in those challenges, it is the faith. And to me, it's my commitment to that character that that's who I'm not giving up on. Right. That's who right. I'm not giving up on because you can start to think about yourself and your ego and what are people going to say. But ultimately, if you don't push through those quote unquote failures or challenges, no one's ever going to know your character. Can you imagine, Ed, if you had stopped and met in black and we had never met those two male characters? I can't imagine. We would have lost them. The world would have lost them. So to me, that's also on the other side of it is fight. If you can't, if you're really having trouble with your own ego, and I, we all have them, our own, you know, the heartache of it, because it can be heartache. There can be heartache in it or just the sheer challenge of it. Fight for your character. Fight for your you sort of have to be like a turtle who loves every egg right. as much, except a lot of them are going to get eaten by birds and aren't going to make <laughs> it to the water with your characters. Meaning every, you're not leaving it on the beach for fate. You're, 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 you care about every human you create and you guess what? They don't all make it. They don't make it to screen. They don't make it to the script or the movie doesn't get made but every character you'd want to give as much life to. And I, I appreciate a lot what you just said, which is for the sake of this character, am I doing my best? For the sake of this character's journey, have I given her or him or them a arc, an arc that ennobles them or whatever it is that is right for them? Is it a tragic, heroic, any iteration in between, whatever you want to call it, is, is this person having as full a life as I can possibly imagine it having? And you still, you know, and. You know, and the one thing I see that is both a lot of emerging writers, um, well, writers of any time on the, on the continuum of emerging to um, seasoned and yet finding uh, like you were talking about that they're not working and that you were talking about how you, one of the things that you see is that kind of cynicism and the shutdown and the closed off. And what I see with emerging writers is the fear to even open that up, right? So they're not at cynicism yet, but it's just the same continuum, continuum of 
that the writing is a vulnerable process. And it is about putting your guts, your heart, your self out on the page. And I find every time though that writing is the funniest, whatever other things you want to label it, but it is the thing that draws readers back to you. It draws that energy back in terms of what everybody is always looking for in terms of attention. And it's, it's that vulnerability. And so much of what you're talking about, Ed, is being willing to do that, is being willing to open up not just your intellect, but your guts, your heart. And uh, I can see that in both of those sides of, of the career. Well, there's, um, and Meg, you and I once somewhere else talked about this, was I believe that there's two sides of the mountain. There's what am I writing? What am I digging up out of my soul, out of my history, out of my aspiration, out of my imagination, out of myself, out of whatever my experience? How deep can I go with it? How real can I go with it? How vulnerable am I really willing to be? How raw, how scared does this make me? How, how much am I truly willing to, to expose myself with something? And is it worth it? And then the other side of the mountain is now, how do I convey that? And once I'm, how do I get the craft and skills to actually convey that raw stuff from the first side of the mountain so that um, it's, I'm giving it its best life. And then how do I deal with what it's becoming as opposed to what I thought it would be? And then comes the back half of your question, rejection. What if it's rejected? And how do I deal with that? And how do I keep going? And early scripts get rejected a lot because guess what? As great as it felt to finish it, and by the way, this happens when you are 40 years into your fucking career where I am. I can't believe I'm 40 <laughs> years into a fucking anything. Let me just say that. I can't believe I can say, fuck. Okay. <laughs> But regardless, thank you for letting me swear on this. Existential crisis happening, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, hold on. Well, I have a breakdown um, and quickly try and buy a Porsche somewhere. <laughs> I can't believe that I'm 40 years into this. And um, I still have that feeling like I finished it. This feels like the best thing ever. It's the best thing I've ever written. And then me plus time, i.e. I read it a week later, or me plus other eyes. Oh, shit. Or whatever it is that gives you that objective sense. Guess what? It's not as good as I thought it was. And even though my skill set is evolving, it's never as good as we think it is. And the problem early in the trajectory, in the you know, continuum of this profession, is we don't have enough experience or skills to be able to judge accurately just why it isn't working as well as, it's, as you want it to be working. And there's some positive things about that too, which I would say a lot of people's early scripts contain more of a voice, Yes, which is a very important thing. And when people are looking for new writers, they're not looking Nobody gives a shit is if, if you hit your inciting incident on page 10 and you have your act break on whatever fucking page they tell you you're supposed to have an act break or midpoint at blah. That is not the thing people are looking for. They're looking for, is there an originality of voice? Is there a human coming through? Is this a person who gives me a, an emotional 
response to reading this piece of material enough that I can say, hey, let me check this person's other work out, or I have an idea for this other person. Anyone can structure a 120-page screenplay. Yeah, I tell that to people all the time, that I, I, as a producer or a consultant or an executive, whoever I am, can help you with structure and points and pages and the need for set pieces and all that shit, but nobody can help you with that authentic voice. There's, no, there's nothing I can do to help you, you know, get there. You, that is just sitting down and being vulnerable and putting it out there. And we can help you with the other side of the mountain, the communication of it. So that second half of the mountain you're describing, I feel like there's people on our, that side of the mountain who can help you uh, communicate it out into the world and make sure it's clear and people are getting it um, and that it does live in the world. But the first half of the mountain, um, we can give you exercises to help you dig. Uh, we can try to shine a light in there. We can hold your hand as you climb the mountain, but you, <laughs> that's your mountain to climb, right? I talk about it as lava, like it's your lava and I can walk in there with you because it's not mine. So it doesn't burn as much, but it's yours. So it's going to hurt like shit uh, and be liberating. I mean, the positive thing about what we're talking about is it, I find it liberating to go there and when it finally comes out on the page. I've also had the experience, I don't know, if, I just had this the other day where I pulled up something I wrote years and years ago because somebody asked to read it. And I was like, man, let me just, I was so scared. I was like, let me just read the first page of this. I was so scared to read it because I was like, what if it's terrible? Because I'm a different person now. I'm a, I'm a different person than I was when I wrote that five years ago. And I was like, hey, I like it. <laughs> I was I, I was like, oh my God, I like this. <laughs> I find that both encouraging and depressing because <laughs> I will go back and look at something. I, I just read something, uh, part of something that I wrote 10 years ago. Um, and it had been a script that had been fairly successful for me in that it didn't get made, but it, it had garnered some good, we got some good eyes on it and it helped me move forward it was, right. it was the result of me sitting down with the people that were my agents at the time and saying, I have some bad news for you guys and you're not gonna wanna hear this. I'm gonna be an older man. And guess what? I wanna stay in this thing for a long fucking time. That means, you know, you, you described me as having written various high concept types of things. That means all that stuff that you can get me in the room on like that, I ain't gonna do. I'll cut my feet by four fifths. I don't care. I want to play the long game here. I need to write something that it takes a grown up to write. And I had tried and failed multiple times over the course of the last 20 years to do that, by the way. Mm. But I got to get in the room on stuff that, that you're going to struggle to get me in. Just let me either win it or not win it on my own, but just get me in the room. That's all I ask. And one person actually heard that and got me in the room on this one thing. There was a great writer attached already. I told the producer that writer is fantastic. And he, I thought he was a fantastic writer. Uh, but if things don't work out, and he'll do a great job. But if things don't work out, I'd like a chance to pitch. And a month later, things didn't work out. And I told him my take. And they hired me on it. And I wrote the script. And the script went through tremendous iterations and rewrites. And I didn't you know, turn it in and go, now pay me. I went it's to the producer because I, I wouldn't, 
this is a tricky thing to talk about, but I, but, but at my level in my career, I believe that I'm being paid to deliver something that you can make. So that's me. That's not, I'm not a writer who's being taken advantage of by producers. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not suggesting this to young writers at right. all. For where I am in my career, I have been paid well. And even on this, which I'm not being quote paid well, my job is to get this script to where it needs to really be. So I probably did 15 drafts with the producer before I turned it in. And it wasn't until I had a breakthrough. And the breakthrough I remember specifically was, this is a story of a, of a boy and five important people in this boy's life. And once I realized that every relationship in this story had its own three-act structure, that the movie itself did not, and I never really thought about acts really in this story. This one didn't really feel like a three-act type right. movie. But in terms of beginning, middle, and end, I was seeing the whole piece as that. And when I finally realized, oh, my God, there are five parallel or inter interweaving, th you know, three-act structures to these, you know, these, this relationship, suddenly it opened up. And I outlined five stories as they related to this one character and the movie finally worked. And awesome. I read that script last week because of something that the person that I mentioned earlier that I'm wildly infatuated with said, um, which was funny, but I won't get into the story of it. Basically, <laughs> I, I, I read, I started to read it and I had this experience, which is, huh, shit, that part well, I went, oh, I'm better at this now. I would have cut that and I had trimmed that. And then I went, oh, shit, that part's better than I can do right now. God damn it. Am I like, shit. Or like I looked at early scripts and went, oh, crap, I could do that then. Why did it not get better? <laughs> some stuff you do get better at, but some stuff you don't. And then you're and trying. Some, and some stuff you lose your voice a little bit. And you're like, oh, my God, look how raw I was right then. And I wasn't afraid. And I just I wasn't afraid. I just put it out there. I put it out and I didn't judge. When we wrote Bill and Ted, when Chris Matheson and I wrote Bill and Ted, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. And I had worked on a TV show. I'd worked on Laverne and Shirley, which I failed out of. And so when we were talking about rejection, we haven't actually got to the benefits of rejection because okay. I, and I will, and I will, I know I'm carrying two threads right now, but the rejection thing I want to get to because okay. truly, if it weren't for rejection, I wouldn't have success, period. And I can, I can actually go back and track it. But when Chris and I were writing Bill and Ted, <laughs> well, we had the characters. We had been playing the characters for a long time, for like a year. We'd just been messing around as Bill and Ted. But when we wrote the script, we wrote it really fast with a divining rod to just what made us laugh, what felt like right for the guys. We were young, early 20s, juvenile, adolescent, and it reflects it. But we didn't know what we were doing but the script broke us into the film business in a way that was beyond our capability or talent. Because then it was a fluke in a certain way, but it was a raw voice and it was a very unique voice actually. I, I look back and I go, wow, we didn't have any rules to play with and we were just doing what we thought was funny and that gave it a voice, hmm. which Goes to, I noticed one question, which is, how, you know, how do you know something's funny if it makes you laugh? And it will never 
be funny if you think it'll make other people laugh, but it doesn't make you laugh. A very simple answer. Right. Very, anyway, we suddenly were hired to do all this stuff we weren't capable of doing. And it became not about like being raw and whatever, it became needing the professional tools and there really are tools developed over time to replicate that experience. Because what happens is once you start and get some success or, or, or have been working for on quite a few scripts, and sometimes it happens whether, when you haven't had success, which is you get a little bit jaded, you get a little cynical, you get a little insecure, whatever it is, you've got to recreate. And I think it's a physical fight the space to allow yourself to have that play, to have that delicate, the, the, calibrate your sensory apparatus, if that's a word, I don't even know, apparatuses, to, to you know, fi be finely calibrated enough with, and get rid of all the noise in your head and in your actual environment so that you can find the more delicate things, you know, and, uh, and try, you know, and to get the skills to, I couldn't have, it probably took 15 years before I could write a script that would be like that Bill and Ted script again, that had that kind of sense of play and freedom. And fun, yeah. Yeah, and fun because it's hard to actually replicate. <laughs> um, along those, to talk about rejection then, if yeah. I may for a second. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I got started really early too early. Um, I'd written plays at UCLA and was writing jokes for comedians. And one of the comedians was Gary Shandling, who introduced me to a TV producer named Mark Sotkin, who gave me my first break. And I still, to this day, owe him big time. And I'm grateful to him. He hired me on Laverne and Shirley, which I was okay at. I wasn't great. I didn't have the skills to go from being funny guy in the dorms and writing plays performed at UCLA to being in a room of professional comedy writers churning these scripts out really quickly at the rate we had to do it. And I was, okay, I got stuff in, I wrote episodes, I punched stuff up, I, but I was no wunderkind. I was, you know, and I didn't get hired. Mark didn't bring me on to his next show. That was the last season of Laverne and Shirley. So it wasn't to be hired back on that, but I didn't get hired onto another show and I felt like a failure and my worst nightmare flashed in the pan oh my god and it was very visible because I was still a senior in college so all my peer group mm, went from hard. Friday I was just another guy writing plays in the UCLA theater department even though I was an economics major but another long story to Monday, I had been hired on a TV show and I could feel my visibility change and I could feel two things at the same time. These same people that are kissing my ass today, treating me like shit on Friday, that's bullshit, cynical. And two, it really feels kind of good. <laughs> I like this feeling of being like a little more visible, right? So those were going on at the same time. And then I thought, oh my God, I can't get a job after Laverne and Shirley there's that visible part. Oh my God. And I was pitching more TV shows and trying, right. Had an agent I'd signed. I'd met a young agent when I got the Laverne and Shirley gig, but rejected him because I went with a fancy agent that had 
heard about because he spoke at a UCLA class that my friends told me, you know, he was a big fancy. And I, I called him and I signed with him because I was a 21 year old working on a TV show. So he was like, yeah, I'll sign you. What do I have to lose? And that guy didn't get me at all. Had I succeeded in the TV world, my career would have probably lasted seven or eight years. I probably would have gotten involved in any number of things that people in comedy team, comedy world were doing in the eighties, a lot of drugs, you know, whatever. I probably would have just fallen right into that. I probably would have, would have leveled out at a kind of mediocrity that I was probably capable of at that time. But because of the rejection, two things happened. I was forced to figure out something else to write. I wrote a spec script that was mediocre. I wrote another spec script that was mediocre. And then Chris and I had been fucking around doing Bill and Ted for like a year without ever thinking we'd put them in a movie. And we said, hey, what if we put these guys in a movie? And it was a move of almost desperation because I was borrowing $5,000 from my parents. I was applying to grad school and I was thinking, I think it's over. Had I succeeded in TV, Bill and Ted wouldn't have happened. But the agent, the fancy agent, when we gave him the script, hated it, wouldn't send it out. There was a funny phone call I got from one of the underlings at the agency where he goes, do you hear this sound? That's me falling on my knees, begging you to not send this script out. <laughs> they thought it was going to destroy me. I went in, Chris drove me to the office i went in up to the penthouse which is now the soho house that's where that that agency was west hollywood up to the penthouse where the agents are i'm gonna give the rallying speech that if it was in a film would be scored with you know big Hans zimmer music or something (laughs) i'm like and i think it's funny and if you guys don't then maybe you shouldn't be representing me and maybe we should be separate you know expecting very well they'd go let's all get behind it and instead they said well maybe we uh, shouldn't be representing you and I didn't have an agent anymore. So I went down and Chris was like, how'd it go? And I remembered like the look on his face of excitement and me going, well, we don't have an agent. <laughs> and I called that old age, the, the young agent, right? right? And I said, hey, I know I turned you down. Would you like to read the script? We stayed in touch. Right. You know, over those he read it. He really liked it. And the, And then he got it to a place and then suddenly that script became like kind of made us flavor of the month for a while from which I failed out of Chris and I our friendship didn't really sustain the pressure of that and we Mm. split up as partners and I thought my career's over and I failed out again um and then a few years of working on stuff and then men in black came and then my career got better but like if I can actually trace every inflection point that was positive in my life to a previous inflection point that was negative is the point I'm trying to make. Which is amazing. And um, I think I really want people to hear it because sometimes I think the universe is stepping in and going, not that way. Don't go that way. I need you over there. Go that direction. And we just see this kind of black and white world that we live in uh, that we think everything's black and white and good or bad. And it's not, it's, uh, it's evolving all the time. But you, you have, have to make a choice. I mean, if I may really quickly, yeah, go ahead. you have to make a choice to make the universe step up. 
In other words, I don't believe there's an external force going, I'm going to move you this way. I believe you got to go, now I have a choice. Right. Turn and walk away or take what I've learned and move forward and turn it and, and keep moving forward until I turn it into an opportunity that I can then credit the universe for. Yeah, I love it. I so we there's have a lot two- of there's Go a ahead. lot of fear with emerging writers or anyone really where you get in that place where you don't know what to do and it's so terrifying to pick a direction because you feel like it's going to be so defining mm. and it you know if I go this way if I go this way but the doing nothing is the death 100%. right you you have to pick a direction when I was a producer I was work Jody was teaching me um and I was going on to set and she's like, listen, here's the thing about first time directors. You got to find out how fast this person can make a decision, because if you let them wait and wait and draw out the decision, you're taking up the time you have to fix it if it's the wrong decision. So it's better to make a decision and then give yourself some time to adjust later if it's if it's either not quite on point or you need you're not sure. So just get make a decision, make a decision. Yes. But yes, what both of oh, you guys yeah. are saying, especially early, first of all, everyone will have you believe that there are standard paths and those are the ways in. First of all, that's complete bullshit. That is a paradigm uh, projected by those who are the gatekeepers to keep themselves keeping the gate. The truth is you have to be as creative about how you get your work out there as you do about what you write starting a b saying yes i'm going to try this i'm going to try that i'm going to try this is always better than as lorian said not doing anything it probably won't happen on the thing you think it'll happen on and it probably won't happen in the way that you think it will happen there are infinite micro juncture uh, junctures you know um happening constantly and you never know what is the actual fork in the road that's going to be the thing that changes your career or your life it is not it is rarely the thing you think it is if i just get the nichols fellowship if i just get into the austin you know whatever finalists it's never that that's the lottery that's playing the lottery it's i've written this and i'm performing it with a little group I'm setting this up. I put a writer's group together now. I'm doing an improv class. I'm trying to stand up for fuck's sake. I'm meeting some actors. I'm just getting it. It's like, it's like constantly creating spaces for yourself to keep pushing forward and keep being challenged. And, and, and it's, it's that that does it. For me, it was writing a play at UCLA, writing a series of plays at UCLA and having them performed by students that, that combined with a comedian that I was writing jokes for, telling a producer to come to that thing. And I think it's the same with seasoned writers, honestly. Like, I think I, you still have to have that kind of churn, that kind of like, I'm going to try this. It could be you're going to take on a genre. Like, what the heck was I doing writing Captain Marvel? That, like, literally, I said to my agent, what? You want me to what? You want me to try to go Captain Marvel? What? And she was like, just trust me. Trust me, you can do this. They need you. You're the one. Just go do the meeting. And I did the. I read that. I read it all, and I was like, "Well, I totally see this. I totally, I'm in here. Like I, it, it. And then it shifts the career in terms of what I'm available to do. Like it shifts my perception of myself and what I can actually do. 
So I think that it's a constant, even as you go in your career, like you said, okay, I want a long career. So I need to now do grown up things. I'm going to push myself. Nobody wants me in those rooms. I'm going to go for it. Like you are the keeper of your own career. There are great agents and managers who can do this for sure. Um, but always you are the first person who cares the most about your career and you have to be pushing yourself and trying these things. So what we're telling emerging writers to do, I think that's all the way through, all the way 100%. through the career, hundred percent have to be constantly doing it. Always sort of within your wheelhouse, just outside your comfort zone at every stage, at every stage within the wheelhouse, just outside the comfort zone. And I mean, I wrote a, Three years ago, I wrote a 530-page spec script in a, in a genre that I'm not known for. It was kind of a suspense sort of thing in a form that didn't exist yet. It was a branching narrative thing. And um, I took two years for that. And I would say that, and that's the thing that they're shooting on HBO next year. So the truth is that the agents and managers as well want you to believe that they are your gatekeepers and that you need them. The truth is they need you, but we don't see that yet. The other truth is our work isn't usually as good as we think it is when it is, but it can get better and better and better and better. And you are in charge. You have to agent your agents. You know, your managers, especially when you're new, the desire when you're a new writer is to feel legitimized and you feel legitimized when a manager takes you on. And then you get into a relationship with that manager often, which is where you ask their permission for things and run your ideas by them and you take their notes. And, you, and part of that is it's fulfilling a deep need to be a legitimate writer in your mind. But the truth is you are, and just going off of what you guys are saying, yeah, I know. you are in charge and you have to take charge. You must take charge. Your voice, it is your vision and you're going to make mistakes, own those mistakes, and keep going forward. Do what yes. you have to do to get as much feedback as you can. Make, if I may, I'm sorry to keep talking about this. No, I love it. Keep going. Networking is not about vertically networking, meeting producers and agents. It's about expanding your reach with other creatives such as yourself. So you can push each other, challenge each other, make work with each other, open doors for each other despise each other, compete with each other, feel jealous of each other, learn from each other, and hopefully gradually realize that their success has no bearing on your success or failure, but rather there's room for everybody. A lot of cookies. Sorry I talked so long. No, no, it's good. I love it. I think it's such a beautiful place to end the podcast, honestly, because it's such a summation of so much of what we were talking about. And I you know, I think that that community is part of the reason Lorian and I did this podcast, what you're talking about of wanting to help writers know they're not alone. They're not alone in the challenges they're facing with their writer, with their writing, either craft wise, but also soul wise, the life of an artist. And that's why we created the Facebook page because we want them to all be able to find each other. And it's so beautiful to watch them start creating writing groups on the page. And, you know, it, because this, this is how it works. And it's so, I I'd never thought about it before in terms of it's not vertical, it's a network out and just how much we are trying to facilitate that for people. Um, Ed, thank you so much thank for being you. on the show today. I think we're going to have to have a part two because I think we could have just talked a whole nother hour with you. I have notes written all over uh, my desk here. 
I just think it was, it was amazing. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's such an honor to be on with you guys. Thank you for having me and, and to whoever's listening. Thank you for, for listening. And uh, I'd love to come back if you ever have space. Oh yeah, no, we'd love to have Wonderful. you back. Yeah. And you got, and listeners, so we've got a big treat for next week. We're going to feature Annie Lamott is coming on. Uh, she's got a new book out. And um, Ed, Ed, you were mentioning she's written. I think she has written one of, if not the, my favorite book on writing was written by Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird. It is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book about the writing process, no matter what you're trying to write. It's, it is, when people ask me, what is your favorite book on writing? That is the book I said. Well, she's going to be here next week. I know we're going to talk about that book and her new book that's coming out. And um, we'll be posting a thread on the Facebook page to ask your questions of Annie Lamont. You guys, it's exciting. Very exciting. And uh, just remember, you are not alone. Keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.